We are gathered here this morning to worship the Lord our God and remember the life and death of our city, Jerusalem. Many in this room, many in the world have called Jerusalem the city of David because King David united the people of Israel as he established this fine city as the capital for God's people. His son Solomon reigned after David and brought the temple to our city. You may remember the glorious temple where we would worship the Lord and God would bring life to our nation. After Solomon, the great kingdom of Israel, the city of Jerusalem experienced civil war and our brothers in the north betrayed us and established a new capital and left Jerusalem. But we in the south continued to live and worship in this great glorious city of Jerusalem. We thought we were invincible. We thought no one could ever beat us. We were the nation blessed by God. We were literally the city on a hill. No one could climb the mountain and destroy us. No one could touch us. We were the one with access to God. We were the ones with the temple. And now look, brothers and sisters, Jerusalem is gone. The temple is in ruins. You can't go and worship God anymore. There aren't even doors to walk through. All that's left are the homeless in the streets and things happening I can't mention because there's children in the room. This, brothers and sisters, is a funeral for the once invincible city of God, Jerusalem. A funeral for my people. With all that in mind, turn with me to Lamentations chapter 2. If you were not here this last week, we are studying through the book of Lamentations, which if you haven't picked up by now, is a book of funeral sermons. The prophet is remembering the life of his people and remembering the death of his people and begging God for a new day, a new life, a resurrection, if you will. We're going to read Lamentations chapter 2, the entire chapter. This is the word of the Lord. How the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the habitations of Jacob. In his wrath, he has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought down to the ground in dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn from them his right hand in the face of the enemy. He has burned like a flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around. He has bent his bow like an enemy with his right hand set like a foe. And he has killed all who were delightful in our eyes in the tent of the daughter of Zion. He has poured out his fury like fire. 
The Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all its palaces. He has laid in ruins its strongholds, and he has multiplied in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentation. He has laid waste his booth like a garden, laid in ruins his meeting place. The Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath, and in his fierce indignation has spurned king and priests. The Lord has scorned his altar, disowned his sanctuary, He has delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They raised a clamor in the house of the Lord as on the day of festival. The Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line. He did not restrain his hand from destroying. He caused rampart and wall to lament. They languished together. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He has ruined and broken her bars. Her king and princes are among the nations. The law is no more, and her prophets find no vision from the Lord. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground in silence. They have thrown dust on their heads and put on sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. Because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. They cry to their mothers, where is bread and wine? As they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city. As their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. What can I say for you? To what compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What can I liken to you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is vast as the sea. Who can heal you? Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes, but have seen for you oracles that are false and misleading. All who pass along the way clap their hands at you. They hiss and wag their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of all the earth? All your enemies rail against you. They hiss. They gnash their teeth. They cry, we have swallowed her. Ah, this is the day we longed for. Now we have it. We see it. The Lord has done what he purposed. He has carried out his word which he commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. Their heart cried to the Lord, O wall of the daughter of Zion, let tears stream down like a torrent day and night. Give yourself no rest, your eyes no respite. Arise, cry out in the night at the beginning of the night watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. Look, O Lord, and see. With whom have you dealt thus? Should women eat the fruit of their womb, the children of their tender care? Should priests and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? In the dust of the streets lie the young and the old. 
My young women and my young men have fallen by the sword. You have killed them in the day of your anger, slaughtering without pity. You summoned as if to a festival day my terrors on every side. And on the day of the anger of the Lord, no one escaped or survived. Those whom I held and raised, my enemy destroyed. In this funeral sermon, you find much of the same haunting realities that we experienced last week. And if you miss those, I will encourage you to go find those, to listen to that sermon. But this morning, we're not going to repeat much of that. Instead, I want to look at this second funeral sermon in a different light to consider the prophet's dismay at the death of his people, and to bring out some of the new realities in this chapter, I want to walk with you and show you three characters that show up in this funeral and what they teach us. Three characters in this drama, in this funeral message, and what they should expose in our lives and in our city in our church, in our nation, and how we should lament. The first character you need to see is God. And God shows us in this passage the need to take him more seriously. You see this all through verses 1 to 10. For the sake of time, I will not read those verses again. But I will just point out in verse 3, if you look there, at how every single line starts. And hopefully you heard it as I read it. He did these things. This was not an accident in Jerusalem. He brought down his city. He brought down his temple. Israel took their relationship for granted. Like the son of a sheriff doing a hundred down the country roads because he thinks that no one in town would ever dare to give him a speeding ticket, the people of Israel thought because they were Israel, they could get away with anything. Six times in these first ten verses, Israel is referred to as the daughter. The daughter of Zion. The daughter of the Lord. All of this suffering is happening to the people who are most precious to God. I want to remind you of God's relationship with this people. This was not a flippant decision by the Lord. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, God declares in verse 6, You, Israel, are a people holy to the Lord your God. He tells them, you are unique, you are set apart, you are different from everyone else. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples, out of all the world who are on the face of the earth, I chose you. And then he tells them why in verse 8. They're his treasured possession. He chose them. 
because the Lord loves you. Not because Israel loved God more. God loved Israel because God loved Israel. Because God loved them more. Not because Israel treasured holiness, but because God treasured them. And over time, that went to their head and they acted like they could live however they wanted. Surely God would protect them. Surely God would forgive them. Surely God would treat them like this forever, no matter what. Israel had a case of selective memory. You ever have a problem with that? You can remember all the things you don't need to know and you forget the things that you really, really need to know. Israel had this problem. They remembered all the blessings. They remembered all the promises. They remembered all the good news, but they conveniently forgot the warnings. Deuteronomy chapter 28, God had laid out the blessings and the curses. In verse 45, this is what he says. All these curses shall come upon you, Israel, and pursue you and overtake you till you are destroyed. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that he commanded you. This entire chapter, I just picked out one verse, is like this. It's a series of warnings to the people of Israel about what will come if they do not obey. And included in that list is verse 36, where Moses writes, The Lord will give you to another nation. Did you catch that? Hundreds of years before the exile in Babylon, when God had given Israel his word and had shepherded them to the promised land at the, in, at the cusp of that blessing, God tells them, if you don't obey these rules, if you don't follow me, you don't trust me, I'm going to give you to another country. I'm going to give my treasured possession to a foreigner. And over time, the people said, yeah, right. That's never going to happen. We're Jerusalem. We're invincible. Lamentations chapter 2 is, is a funeral service of mourning, recognizing that God has done exactly what he said, that God was not playing, that Israel did not take God serious enough. Instead of a relationship between a loving father and da a daughter, Look at where Israel finds herself. Look at verse 5. The Lord has become like an enemy. The daughter has become the villain. The father has become the antagonist. Now, some of you right now, I know this is happening. Some of you right now are thinking, hey, that was Israel, and they're in the Old Testament. We're the church, and we're in the New Testament. Guess what you're doing? You're taking your relationship for granted. You're doing exactly what they did. But I'll also offer you, church, some New Testament warnings as well. And just consider that this is not an Old Testament, New Testament thing. Hebrews chapter 10, New Testament, Hebrews chapter 10 Verse 26 to 31. Listen to the writer, church. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, 
there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. That's Old Testament. What about the New Testament? How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The writer of Hebrews says, You're not under less pressure in the New Testament. Because grace is more, you're under more pressure. The expectations are higher because of what God has gifted you through the Holy Spirit and his grace. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 29, the writer says, Our God is a consuming fire. Now check this out. Where did he get that verse? That's a quote. If you guess Lamentations chapter 2, you're right. Look at the end of verse 3. He has burned like a flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around. Our God is a consuming fire, Old Testament and New Testament. Brothers and sisters, our God does not change. James says there's no variation. He doesn't flex. He is who he is. He is the great I am. Romans chapter 9, verse 21 to 22, Paul says, If God did not spare the natural branches, that's Israel, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Brothers and sisters, did you know that this was the message that started the Great Awakening in the United States of America before they were even the United States of America? Before 1776, a pastor named Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon that shook the nation to its core and brought its knees to God. And do you know what that message was? It wasn't the love of God in Christ. The message that awoke the United States before they were the United States was sinners in the hands of an angry God. That's the message that laid the foundations. And the foundations that are in ruins. We have lost our memory of sinners in the hands of an angry God. Friends, how many times today do we take our relationship with God for granted? On a personal level, how many times do you just assume, well, God, give me grace. I mean, if I come to him in prayer, it's going to be all right. How many times as a, as, a, as a people, as a community, as a church, as a city, have we I just, it, it's going to be fine. Of course, nothing's going to go wrong with us. We're First Baptist Church. We're the United States of America. We're the city on a hill. Does that not sound familiar? Andrew Dearman writes, based on Lamentations 2, 
No one can stand on holy ground and assert that nothing will ever happen to them. No one is indestructible. No one is invincible. Brothers and sisters, consider Israel's exile in Babylon, their funeral message as your example. And to just lay it back home, again, I'll give you one more New Testament verse. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17. If you call on him as father, is God your father? The one who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. As you lament in Babylon Christian, and as you have a relationship with God who judges, take him seriously in the way you live in exile. Friend, I don't know where in your life you need to take him more seriously. I know there's areas in mine. I'm assuming there's some in yours. Whatever it is, we need to hear this serious word from a holy God and act, conform our lives to his word, to live holy as he is holy, as Peter also says. Now, friends, this all assumes that you have a relationship with God to begin with. God loves you. He does. But he takes his holy character, his holy law so serious that he holds people accountable who run against it. And he does so much so, he took sin so seriously that he sent his own son, Jesus Christ, to take your place, to show the severity of God against sin on Christ himself on the cross so that he could demonstrate his kindness to those who believe. And he doesn't do this like Israel because you love him enough. He does it because he loves you enough. That's why the good news of the gospel is this, Romans 5 verse 10, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Friend, have you been reconciled by his son? You have to acknowledge that you start out like Israel, an enemy. And you have to repent. You have to turn from your rejection of his word and his law and put your trust in what his son did for you on the cross. In his resurrection from the dead, when you put your trust in him and believe in him, you are made right with God so that you are no longer an enemy but a child, a daughter, a son of God. Friend, wherever you are with him, take the Lord more seriously. There's a second character in this poem, in this funeral message. It is the poet himself, and he calls for us to show one another more sympathy. Verses 11 to 19 turn on verse 11. He interrupts the, the message about what God does to Jerusalem and talks from a first-person perspective. Look at verse 11. The poet writes, My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter 
of my people. How many times do you hear about a catastrophe? You hear about a problem. You hear about a tragic situation on the news. And your first gut-level reaction is to say something like, that's what they get. Serves them right. If they had just done this, if they just listened to that, we wouldn't be here. We wouldn't need to protest. That's what they get. The poet could have done that. He could have come to the city and all of its destruction and said, God told you in Deuteronomy 28 what was going to happen. God used the prophets. If the prophet Jeremiah wrote Lamentations, he could have said, I told you what was going to happen. Over and over and over again, but you didn't listen. You did this to yourself. And listen, you know what? It would have been true. It would have been intellectually right, but it would have been relationally wrong. In verse 11, the prophet, the poet, sees the pain in his city and shares in their misery. Physically. He sees the tragedy on the streets and gets sick to his stomach. And he recognizes there's only one place they're going to get help. It's not another nation. It's not another leader. It's God. That's why in verse 19, he points them back to God with four commands. He says, arise, get up, cry out in the night. Pour out your heart like water. Lift your hands to him for the lives of your children. And so notice, two things happen with the poet. Inwardly, he feels their pain. He empathizes. He he gets into their situation. And then outwardly, he points them to hope. Shows them where to go with their problem. Mark Brogott writes, our personal pain can make us self-focused. And at the same time, we can keep the pain of others at a distance. Does anybody else know what that's like? Real life hits, tragedy hits in your life. And then for weeks, maybe months, maybe years, that's the only thing you can think about. And every conversation that happens in your life is filtered through that bad experience. And every message that's preached on Sunday morning somehow has to do with that one thing that happened in your life. And then meanwhile, the person next to you is going through a world of things like that, but it never crosses your mind. Because the only thing you're thinking about is you and what you've been through. Look at the poet. Learn to sympathize. Learn to see what your neighbor is going through. Don't keep the pain of others 
at a distance. Friends, think about how we pray. I mean, if we're just really honest, we, we go to God and, and there's so many first-person pronouns. God, help me. God, rescue me. Restore me. Save me. Change this for me. Where's the us? Where is the we? What is happening, may I remind you, in Lamentations is not the story of an individual's problem. It is a national crisis. It is the sins of a society bringing about the suffering of the city, the destruction, the death of a city. And here in Lamentations chapter 2, we see a man of God entering into the pain of the people and standing in the gap and calling on God for them and calling on them for God. Where are we? Right now, friends, where are we? Some see the pain that's going around. We have just gone through so much in the last few years. What's happening? Some of us see it, watch it, listen to it, consume it, and just get angry and blame those people. It's their fault. And some of us can't even be bothered to to feel anything because we can't see past ourselves. And, And our world is this small. It's one person big. And we're just dealing with me. And both of those responses are less than what we see here. But more importantly than what we see here, think of Christ. Christ is the high priest who can sympathize. The one who was made just like us and went through every kind of temptation so that he could understand the pain and sorrows of this life and understand what it's like to walk in a mile in our shoes. He entered into your very own lamentation. Luke tells us in Luke 19, verse 41, that when he drew near and saw the city of Jerusalem, he wept. Because like the prophet, like the poet, that pain became personal. Friend, if you're a child of God, let me remind you, one of your identities is an ambassador of Christ. You represent the man who went up on the hill, looked at the city, and cried. That's your king. And an ambassador is only allowed to go and say what the king has said. We represent him into our broken city. So let me ask, ambassador, representative, what problems do you see in this zip code or your zip code? What tragedies are happening in your neighborhood on your street? Not on the news. What destruction, what despair, what tragedy is happening within arm's reach? Ambassador, how can you step into that with the compassion and mercy and sympathy of Christ? Look past your individual story and weep with those who weep. 
share in their suffering as Christ shared in yours. And as you enter into that broken world, point them to hope to the only one who can rescue. Put a name on it. Who, what individuals need encouragement? Can I give you some encouragement? The answer to that is not to point them to a pastor. You're the priest who's supposed to take the word of God to that situation and preach the gospel. Point them to hope, the hope that you have. We are not those who grieve without hope. We have the comfort of Christ. That's why 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 says, finally, watch this, all of you. <laughs> Doesn't matter what role you play. Finally, all of you have unity of mind and sympathy and brotherly love and a tender heart and a humble mind. Friends, look at that. In this world right now, you are not allowed to have disunity as the people of God. You are not allowed to have a hard heart that doesn't appreciate the pain of what somebody else is going through. You are not allowed to have a hostile approach to someone who's broken. You're not allowed to listen to the news and grumble at why it's their fault. You and me must have a tenderness that gets past that and appreciates the pain and sees children of God weeping in the streets and asks, how can I be a solution? How can I be of help? Remember the poet the next time that opportunity comes. The last character I want to point you to is the city and quickly show you why the city teaches us that we need to pray all the more diligently. Because it's only three verses, let's read those verses again. Verse 20 to 22. The poet says, look, O Lord, and see. Actually, this is the city. Look, O Lord, and see with whom you have dealt thus. Should women eat the fruit of their womb, the children of their tender care? Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? In the dust of the streets lie the young and the old. My young women and my young men have fallen by the sword. You have killed them in the day of your anger, slaughtering without pity. You summoned as if to a festival day my terrors on every side. And on the day of the anger of the Lord, no one escaped or survived. Those with whom I held and raised, my enemy destroyed. This is funeral sermon number two, and for the second time, the sermon ends in a prayer. It ends with a lament, a cry to God, and if you look at the content, there's not much here. Israel doesn't pray to God for forgiveness. Israel doesn't even ask for salvation. Israel doesn't even ask for rescue. This is the basis of their prayer. Look, God, how can this be? And that's it. That's all that they have. 
And for the second week in a row, the prayer goes unanswered. There's no fourth character. There's, God doesn't return and speak into this lament. All you get at the end is, look, God, how come? My friends, if you think that's frustrating, just consider your own life. Isn't that real? You pray, and you don't hear. And you go back, and you pray, and you're still not sure. If you've ever prayed for anything, you know that most of the time, you've got to pray more than once. Pray and wait. You pray some more, and you wait, and then you pray again, and you find out you're still waiting. We're only like two weeks into a one-month study of Lamentations, but consider this. The people were praying like this for 70 years in Babylon. Think what that means, especially in that time with the life expectancy the way it was. There were people born in Babylon who prayed in Babylon and died in Babylon and never saw an answer. So two to five weeks of studying this is nothing compared to that kind of waiting. But consider the track record of God. How long were the people in Egypt before the rescue? 400 years. How long between the promise of David and the king of David? Nearly a thousand years. And how many years has it been since the resurrection and the promise for the return of Christ? 2,000 years. Friends, let this second week and this second chapter remind you that you need to keep praying. You might have left last week and you went to God and lamented and prayed and asked God to help and he didn't show up. Keep praying. Keep waiting. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 18. Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. Friend, whatever it is you're waiting on God for, whatever it is that you are praying about, whatever that is bringing the tears and pain into your life, don't quit yet. Don't give up. For the sake of your children, for the sake of your people, for the sake of your city, pray without ceasing. The Lord is faithful and he will surely do it. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 35 to 39. Listen to the word of the Lord as we close, brothers and sisters. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Friends, this is who we are. May we endure, may we keep praying all the more diligently as we wait on our God. Let us pray.